Welcome to One Chapel. We're a family of neighborhood churches in the Austin area. Our vision is to help people move from where they are to where God wants them to be. It's a place to connect, grow, and serve the communities where we live. You can learn more about One Chapel and how to get involved at onechapel.com. And now, here's this week's message. This morning, I want to take you back to April 21st, just eight weeks ago. Can you remember back that far? People were still cleaning up from South by Southwest. Schools were still in session. The low was 58 degrees. It was Easter Sunday, a day where we lifted our voices and celebrated the resurrected King. And just to say, I think a few of our kids ate too many peeps and may have gone into a little bit of a sugar coma, just saying. If you were here on Easter Sunday, you might remember that I asked a simple question. And that question was, what is the most relatable symbol in our Christian faith? Is it the image of a baby swaddled and lying in a manger? Is it the followers of Jesus waving palm branches and laying them at the feet of Jesus, proclaiming that he is the king? Is it the cross that's put on church steeples and on hospitals and tattooed on forearms and worn on necklaces by people all around the world? I think these are some of the powerful images that might come to your mind. But to really put the gospel story into our context, Maybe the most relatable image that we can all identify with is a little bit more simple than all of these. Because I think one of the most relatable symbols to really understand the gospel story is actually a table. As a matter of fact, the table is a symbol that's so relatable that's used all over in pop culture. There's a version of the Last Supper with the Lost Cast. There's a Star Wars Last Supper There's even a cereal mascot's last supper. See, a a table is just so relatable because this is where we gather. We use a table today just like people did 2,000 years ago. We gather around it for meals. We gather around it with friends and family and neighbors and even sometimes enemies because after all, you have to have your in-laws over every once in a while for dinner. If you were here on Easter story, I I told the story of what that last supper might look like if it happened here in 2019. And I showed you how the gospel story is about every one of us being welcomed to this table. Jesus says that you are welcome to the table just as you are. You are welcome here. Every one of us can find life and redemption at this table. Today, we're starting a new series we're going to go deeper into this topic. We're going to look at who Jesus sat down with at the table and what those encounters were like. Because one of the people that Jesus sat down with was this wealthy, vertically challenged tax collector. He sat with a woman who had five ex-husbands. He even sat with a group of men who were so convinced that he was dead, that Jesus had to eat fish with them just to prove that he wasn't a ghost. These are just a few of the amazing stories that we're going to study in this series. 
actual stories of real encounters with Jesus. And so as we start this new series, I want to invite you to the table this morning. In Luke chapter 22, verse 14, it says, Then Jesus and the others arrived at the proper time, all sat down together at the table. And he said, I have looked forward to this hour with deep longing, anxious to eat this Passover meal with you before my suffering begins. For I tell you now that I won't eat it again until what it represents has occurred in the kingdom of God. Then he took a glass of wine, and when he'd given thanks for it, he said, Take this and share it among yourselves. For I will not drink wine again until the kingdom of God has come. Then he took a loaf of bread, and when he had thanked God for it, he broke it apart and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, given for you. Eat it in remembrance of me. After supper, he gave them another glass of wine, saying, This wine is a token of God's new agreement to save you, an agreement sealed with the blood I shall pour out to purchase back your souls. But here, at this table, sitting among us, is a friend, is a man who will betray me. I must die. It is part of God's plan, but oh, the horror awaiting the man who betrays me. Then the disciples wondered among themselves which of them would ever do such a thing. As we start this new series, I want to ask you just to pray with me and ask God to really open up our eyes and our hearts to what he might want to speak to us today and even through this whole series. And so, Father, right now, right here at the beginning of this service, Father, we come to you. Lord, we need your revelation. Lord, we need your spirit of truth to work in our lives. We need you to work in our hearts and our minds. Open up so that we can see things differently. Help us to shake loose even from our cultural things that kind of make this such a religious thing. Father, would you just work in us? Open our eyes, open our ears to be able to hear things from your perspective. And we pray this in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. How many of you remember these? WWJD, remember these? Back in the 1990s, any of you? Come on, anybody? Remember WWJD? What would Jesus do? I think it's a great question, but when you think about it, it might just be a little unhelpful. I mean, because Jesus was a single male in the first century, and he was a Jewish rabbi. And so I don't know how many of us can relate to that, (laughs) I mean, if you're a young mom and you're in the mode of having babies and you're trying to figure out how to nurse feed, the question, how would Jesus breastfeed? I mean, it just it's not very helpful, right? You, you know what I'm saying here? And so I think a better question may actually be this. What would Jesus do if he were me? Come on, think about that. What would Jesus do if he were me? If he were a high school student? If he were a college student? If he were a woman? If he owned a business, if he was in this situation, what would he do if he were me? I just think this is a particularly important question for us today because we live in a time now that's called a post-Christian culture. And when I say a post-Christian culture, that doesn't necessarily that we moved on from a Christian culture. As a matter of fact, I mean, so many of our values and so many of our, our just our morals and our culture today are still rooted in, in Jesus. But the key, when we talk about this whole idea of a post-Christian culture, the key to kind of wrap your head around is that it's a reaction to and against a Christian culture. That's the times in which we live today. That's why it's called a post-Christian culture. There's a reaction 
that's happening in our culture today that's against Christianity. I just think it's kind of like the West's rebellious teenage moment. In history, we're, we're having this kind of this teenage rebellious moment that's happening all around us. That's why so many of our friends who don't follow Jesus are more open to yoga and, and quasi-Buddhist mindfulness notions and organic juice than they are to following Jesus. I think it's why so many of our friends are they're more open to Islam and Judaism than to the, the way of Jesus because it's just kind of this knee-jerk reaction kind of moment that's happening in our culture today. And even if people aren't hostile towards Jesus, there are a million different things that you could be doing here on a Sunday morning than being here at church. This is the culture in which we live in today. Rosaria Butterfield, in her book, um, it's called The Gospel Comes with a House Key. I, I love this book. Um, listen to this, what, how she describes it. She says, let's face it, we've become unwelcome guests in the post-Christian world. Our children ride their scooters in neighborhoods where conservative Christianity is dismissed or denounced as irrelevant, irrational, discriminatory, and dangerous. Many of us go to work in places where sensitivity training has become the Orwellian nightmare. Christian common sense is declared hate speech by the new keepers of this culture. The old rules don't apply here anymore. Many Christians genuinely don't know what to say to their unbelieving neighbors. The language and the logic have changed almost overnight. And I think for so many of us, this can be so disorienting because this is what has changed in our lifetime. We're seeing it happen right in front of our faces. It was one way, and now it's completely another. And so one of the questions that we have to ask is, as we're living in this post-Christian culture, so what does that mean? How now do I live? And really the question that I want you to wrestle with is how do we invite people to follow Jesus along with us in this post-Christian culture? Now, what's hard is because I think the reason why you are here, chances are, it's because you've experienced different aspects of this amazing life that Jesus came to give us, this life and life to the full, this life more abundantly that he promised to give us. And I think that's one of the reasons why you're here. I think another reason why you're here is because you've experienced different aspects of the reality of God's amazing love poured into your life. And how just a touch of his love all of a sudden it begins to change you from the inside out. And one of the things that changes you is now all of a sudden you have a love for the people around you. Sometimes it's hard to know what to do with it, but now all of a sudden you're starting to love your family and your friends and your coworkers and your neighbors and the barista who's serving you coffee in your favorite coffee shop. And the lady who's checking you out at HEB, all of a sudden, there's this love that's in your heart. But what do you do with this? Because how do you invite people into this amazing life of following Jesus in a culture that's hostile, in a culture that's, <clears throat> that's not PC, where we feel so weird and awkward about all this. Well, I think one option is that we just don't. We don't do anything about it. In other words, our apartments and our houses become like castles where we wall ourselves in. And when we're out in public, we just kind of keep our, our heads down. And we don't really share what we believe. I think that's one of the options that we tend to default into. Another option is that we just edit the way of Jesus. In other words, in order to somehow relate to the culture around us, we have to kind of take things out of the Bible and take things out of the gospel to make it more PC, to make it more palatable to those who are around us. And I think at the end of the day, option one or option two is where most of us tend to land. We, those, that's where we kind of go. Either 
We just kind of, we just don't deal with it, we don't talk about it, or we just kind of, we want to kind of water it down so it's a little bit more palatable. But the question I want you to think about really starting this, this morning and as we go through this series is, what if there's a third option? What if there's a third option than just these two that I mentioned? Because I think there is. And this third option is a practice that really transcends time and trend. It's a practice that actually goes all the way back to the time of Jesus. Look at this in Luke chapter 7, verse 34. It says, the son of man came eating and drinking, and you say, here's a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. This is our theme verse for this series. And chances are, I'm betting on that nobody nobody in here would have ever thought that we would do a series on this verse. Because here's the saying, the son of man came eating and drinking. He came eating and drinking. What in the world does that have to do with anything? I think most of us just kind of goes over our head. He came eating and drinking. Why is that even noteworthy? And one of the reasons why I think so many of us, we don't really understand this idea of eating and drinking is because meals back then during Jesus' time was meant so much more than it does for you and me today. Today, I think we've lost the power and the impact that meals can have in our lives because the reality is meals have the power to bring people together, And meals have the power to really pull people apart. Mary Douglas, in her book called Boundaries, she says it this way. She says, meals bring people together, but they also keep people apart. Think of the pre-civil rights restaurants in the South. No black signs on the front door. Or in England, no blacks, no Irish, no dogs. Even in our laid-back, open-minded, progressive cities, still as a general rule, most of us eat with people who are friends or family. Most of us eat with people who are like us who fall into the same basic socioeconomic stratum as us, who are of the same ethnicity as us. I just think this is so true, right? I think it's, and I think it's really true of really all societies, but this was especially true in the first century Jewish society. New Testament scholars call this table fellowship. It's a term you're going to hear a lot about because this is really what we're going to talk about, one of the things we'll talk about through, through this series. Now let me give you the backstory of what this table fellowship was all about. Because 400 years before Jesus arrived on the scene, the people of Israel were taken into exile into Babylon, which was a 1,000 miles east of Israel. And when that happened, the temple in Jerusalem was destroyed, which meant that the center of the Jewish faith was obliterated. The sacrifices were put to the end, and the role of the priesthood was really wiped out. And so think about this. Put yourself kind of in their place as a man or a woman who find, you find yourself in a strange exiled land in, in Babylon, really kind of in a slavery mode. That's what, what you're in. So you're there. So how in the world are, now, are you going to be able to obey the Torah, which is Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy? That is the law. That everything about being a Jew was to follow Judaism. To be a Jew, to be an Israelite, was to practice Judaism. And the practice of Judaism is all through the Torah. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And if you've ever read those five books, it's an endless list of do's and don'ts. These rules and regulations that were there. And so now you're in Babylon. How do I do this? How do I even obey half of the commands with no temple and no sacrifices and no priests? Well, you can't. It's impossible for you really to to practice Judaism in that culture. And so what the rabbis did is they came up with kind of this new framework to practice Judaism. And so what they came up with is that your home is now the new temple. 
Your table is now the new altar. The father of the house is now the new priest. And the meal is now the new sacrifice. Isn't that interesting? It completely translated everything that was centered around the temple and around sacrifice and around the priesthood. They moved it into the home context. And now the home was the new temple. The table was the altar. The father of the household were the priests. And the meal was the new sacrifice. I think it's interesting. But then the Pharisees kind of this religious side, they actually were really good, by the way. They kind of got skewed, you know, in their process. But the Pharisees came along saying that what got us into exile was sin. The reason why we're stuck here in Babylon was because all the sins that the Israelites had been doing, and that's why we're here. And so what will get us out of exile is for us to stop sinning, for us to sin less and hopefully not to sin at all. And so there was this idea that if, if all of Israel for 24 hours would stop sinning, so all Israelites would not sin for 24 hours, and for 24 hours they would obey all the Torah for that, for that 24 hours, then that would unlock something, and the Messiah would come, and they would be delivered. And so that was the thing that was happening there in the culture. So jump forward 400 years later, and Jesus, when Jesus arrives on the scene, because now, even though the Israelites were back in Israel and the temple had been rebuilt, only two-thirds of the Israelites, they were still scattered, really, in, in other countries. Only one-third of the Israelites were back in Israel, back there. And those Israelites that were in Israel were now under the strong thumb of control of the Roman Empire. And so to them, they were still in exile. Even though some of them were in Israel, they were still in exile. So how do we get out of this? Well, what the Pharisees did, well, they upped the ante again. And what they did is they called for every person, not just the priests, but for every Jew to live by the commands of the priests in the temple. Because after all, your home is the new temple, your table is the new altar, and the meal is the new sacrifice. Now, on the surface, I think it's, it seems brilliant. It seems really good. I mean, this is called a holiness, right? It's called to live your life right. Not just a select few of people, not just the priests, but every single one of us is called to holiness. But the problem is, if you know the commands of the priests in the temple, then you know there are a bazillion rules and regulations that they had to maintain, including the command that no Gentile could ever, ever, ever sit at your table. Neither could anyone who had a special need. Nobody with special needs could sit at your table. Neither could anyone who had been deformed could sit at your table. And not only that, most definitely no one who is a sinner could ever, ever, ever sit at your table, which is a way to say those who were, who were non-Toral observant. That's what they were talking about here. So these are the people you had to isolate yourself. You could not sit. You could not have a meal with any of these types of people. So, so do you see what was going on? You see what's happening when Jesus arrived on the scene? Because that's why a rabbi in that culture would never, ever, ever, ever find himself even dead eating a meal in a house with drunkards or tax collectors or sinners. New Testament commentator Scott Barchley said it this way. He said, it would be difficult to overestimate the importance of table fellowship for the cultures of the Mediterranean basin in the first century of our era. Mealtimes were far more than occasions for individuals to consume nourishment. 
Being welcomed at a table for the purpose of eating food with another person had become a ceremonially rich symbolic of friendship, intimacy, and unity. Thus, betrayal or unfaithfulness toward anyone with whom one had shared the table was used as particularly reprehensible. On the other hand, when persons were estranged, a meal invitation opened the way to reconciliation. Isn't that interesting? The power of the meal. That's what we're talking about here. One German theologian said it this way. He said, in the East, even today, to invite someone to a meal is an honor. It is an offer of peace, trust, brotherhood, and forgiveness. In short, sharing a table means sharing life together. In Judaism, in particular, table fellowship meant fellowship before God. The eating of a piece of broken bread by everyone who shares in the meal brings out the fact that they all have a share in the blessings spoken over the unbroken bread. The inclusion of sinners in the table fellowship is an inclusion in the community of salvation. To them, it was the most meaningful expression of the redeeming love of God. And so what Jesus was doing in that culture at that time was completely unheard of and absolutely radical. Because what he was doing was he was welcoming everyone to his table. Luke 7 verse 34 the Son of Man came eating and drinking, and you say, here is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Over the next several weeks, we're going to look at seven, seven different situations, seven different times where Jesus sat down and ate a meal with people, all sorts of people, people that were even included to be those who were untouchable. All of this was happening in a culture that was so hostile, which is the reason why Jesus had this reputation of being a glutton and a drunkard, eating only with sinners and tax collectors. He had this reputation. In the Gospel of Luke alone, there are over 50 references to Jesus and food. In, in the, the Gospel of Matthew, there are 94 references to Jesus and food. I love this, this statement by Robert Karras, who's a New Testament scholar. He writes, in Luke's Gospel, Jesus is either going to meal, at a meal, or coming from a meal. I like this Jesus. <laughs> I want to be like this Jesus. Come on. I want to do what, what this Jesus did. This is, this is what Jesus was doing. But here's the thing that we have to understand in, in regards to how radical this was, this action that Jesus was doing, because Jesus got himself killed because of the people he ate with. Because Jesus ate with the wrong people, it ultimately got himself killed. See, for Jesus, meals were not a boundary marker. For Jesus, meals were a sign of God's great love, welcoming everyone into God's kingdom. For Jesus, meals were not a way to keep people out, but a way to invite people in. Luke 19, verse 10 says, For the Son of Man came to seek and to save what was lost. That, that phrase, the Son of Man, is not just used once in the book of Luke. It's actually used twice. Once it's used to describe Jesus' mission, and once it's used to describe Jesus' methodology. Luke 19, verse 10, the Son of Man came to seek and to save what was lost. That was Jesus' mission. That was his mission. Luke 7, verse 34, the Son of Man came eating and drinking. That was Jesus' methodology. In other words, that's how he did it. That's how he accomplished his mission. Now look at this, because Jesus lived in a culture where people were hostile and were at arm's length towards the way that Jesus was describing entry into the kingdom of God. Sound familiar? 
This is the type of culture that you and I live in that's described by the words post-Christian culture. This is the culture that we live in that tends to be hostile toward Christianity. It tends to not be PC anymore. And it's just, it's hard, I think, as Christians to, it's, there's an awkwardness and a weirdness now in living out our faith. This was the type of culture that Jesus lived in. And so the question becomes, well, then how did Jesus do it? This was the culture that he was in. How did Jesus do it? How did Jesus walk people into his kingdom, into the kingdom of God? And the answer is one meal at a time. One meal at a time. So I think for so many of us, this idea of sharing the gospel and talking about the gospel or that dreaded word evangelism feels for so many of us like fingers on a chalkboard, right? Right? You know, it's like, mm, it's like, mm, ah, the idea of having to do, do that is just, it's just, it, it's like, ah, we have reactions to it. A lot of us have reactions to it. It's kind of, kind of like those spam calls that we get, we get on our phones now. They're just irritating, right? It's like, ah, stop. Why do you keep on hassling me or those high-pressured salesmen who are trying to get you to buy something that you really don't want? They're relentless. They keep nagging you. Yes, yes. It's so hard to say no to them. It's kind of like network marketing for how some people run network marketing, by the way, where they invite you over for dinner and you're going over thinking that we want to be friends and we're going to establish a relationship only to find out halfway in the meal that they pull out a pamphlet and they're trying to sell you something. It just feels like a bait and switch, right? There's all these ulterior motives, and as a result, you don't feel cared for and loved for as an individual. I think that's a a lot how so many of us react to when we think about sharing the gospel or this idea of evangelism. But what I want you to see and hear, not just this morning, but as we go through this series, what I want you to understand is that Jesus was constantly sharing and preaching the message of this wide availability of the gospel that why he came and that Jesus is welcoming you here to his table. As messy as your life is, you can come. But he was doing this constantly in a culture that was hostile. He was doing it in a culture like that. And so if Jesus had a method for his quote-unquote evangelism, as far as I can tell from looking at the four Gospels, I think it would basically look like this. First, If you're with a bunch of conservative cultural Christians, in other words, people who for some way or another, they they believe in God, they believe in the Bible, but they may just have missed the plot line, but deep down inside, they really kind of know what the truth is. They're not acting on it, they're not living on it, but deep down inside, they kind of know it. If that's who you're talking with, then stand up in the crowd, get as many people around you as you can, and preach. That was his method. But if you're with somebody who is on the margins... If you're with somebody who's been hurt by the church, if you're with somebody who's been hurt by somebody in the family of God, if you're with somebody who wants nothing to do with organized religion, then open up your home and eat a long meal with them. Open up a bottle of wine if you're good with that. If not, water is just fine. Jesus did a lot with water. (laughs) And just talk. Sit and talk. Small talk. Listen. Be quiet and listen. Don't expect them to be where you want them to be. Just love them for where they are. Spend time with them and then eventually down the road, invite them to experience this life that's now normative for you, this life of following Jesus. Listen, everybody, that's it. That's it. That was Jesus's method. See, this practice 
of eating and drinking was central to the way of Jesus. It wasn't a side thing. It was central. It was right at the core of everything he did. But tragically, I think for so many of us, we've lost this in our modern day culture. With our hyper-individualism, we just end up living life alone, right? We're out, we're out there just kind of living our life on our own. With this suburbanization of, our, of, of urban planning, after a long day's work, and having to then go through horrific traffic to get back home, all you can do is you, just, you can hardly wait to get home. And so you drive up to your house and you push the garage door open. You put your gar- car into the garage and you immediately close the garage door. And what you end up doing is you, you just hunker down. You hunker down in your castle, living your life isolated then from others. I think we would all agree that we've lost something here, Right? We've lost something in in terms of the importance and the power of the meal around the table. And so the question I want you to be considering here as we talk today, as we go through this series, is what if we were to recapture it? What if we were to recapture what Jesus did? What if we would become people who would gather around a table with just all kinds of people? Not as entertainment, not as some sort of social benefit to your own status. Not as this kind of closed-off culture of insiders, but actually as a practice of the Jesus way of loving others, of forming relationships, of hospitality, of really living this kingdom of God. What would happen in our community if we would do that? What would happen in our neighborhoods? What would happen in our city? Because it was through this common, ordinary meal that Jesus radically taught and showed this wide open invitation to God, to all of us, that all of us were welcome to come and sit at his table. And really, nowhere is this more profoundly and radically shown than at the meal that we call the Last Supper. Now, I think for so many of us, we, we, we miss this, we, we miss what was happening at this meal. And so I want you to take it back just a little bit, because in that Last Supper, it was a room full of people who in just a few hours would either run and hide when things got tough, or they would deny that they had any relationship with Jesus, or they'd completely betray him. This was the group of people that Jesus had invited to his table to have this meal with him. This is who Jesus invited. But yet it was in that room, at that table, at that meal, that Jesus makes this connection from the old the old temple, the sacrifices, and the few priests that were, had that special position with God to the table fellowship where the home was now the temple and your table was now the new altar and the meal was the sacrifice. And some way, somehow, the, the Jewish people had to somehow live up to all the rules and regulations of the law. Jesus took those two things there at that meal and he introduced this incredible rescue plan that God had been working underneath all along, this rescue plan where Jesus would become the temple, where Jesus would become the priest, where Jesus would become the sacrifice, all wrapped up into one so that Jesus could then sacrifice his life, give his life for every one of us. It was at this meal, it was at this table that Jesus did that. Unfortunately, I think for so many of us, we've reduced this amazing meal that Jesus had with those people. We've reduced them to a religious ceremony that's, that's, that's really, it's, it's, it's only done in church context sometimes with little wafers and little, little cups of juice. And so as a result, what happened to the meal? 
What happened to the meal that was being shared, the eating and drinking together? Because that last supper was a meal. I think for so many as we just don't understand what's happening in there, it just becomes this religious symbol that we do. Now, in case you think that this is just something that we deal with here in America in our post-Christian culture, let me take you back just a little bit because it didn't take long for those, that first, those first century Christians to mess this all up as well. Because you fast forward 30 years later, after Jesus' death and resurrection, look at what the Apostle Paul was writing to the church in Corinth in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 18. He writes, Now on this next matter, I wish I could commend you, but I cannot. Because when you meet together as a church family, it is doing more harm than good. Boy, I sure hope that's not the case for us today. I've been told many times that when you meet as a congregation, divisions and cliques emerge. And to some extent, this doesn't surprise me. Differences of opinion are unavoidable. Yet they will reveal which ones among you truly have God's approval. When all of your house churches gather as one church family, you are not really properly celebrating the Lord's Supper. For when it comes time to eat, some gobble down their food before anything is given to others. One is left hungry while others become drunk. Again, remember, this is a meal. This was a meal that was, they would come together as believers to celebrate and to eat together. Get out of your head the little wafers and the little cups that were happening here. This was a meal. The church would come together, and they would celebrate around this meal. So he says, for when, it comes to you, for when it comes time to eat, some gobble down their food before anything is given to others. One is left hungry while others become drunk. Don't you all have homes where you can eat and drink? Don't you realize that you're showing a superior attitude by humiliating those who have nothing? Are you trying to show contempt for God's beloved church? How would I address this appropriately? If you're looking for my approval, you won't find it. I have handed down to you what came to me by direct revelation from the Lord himself. The same night in which he was handed over, he took bread and gave thanks. And then he distributed it to the disciples and said, take it and eat your fill. It is my body which is given for you. Do this to remember me. He did the same with the cup of wine after supper and said, this cup seals the new covenant with my blood. Drink it. And whenever you drink this, do it to remember me. Whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you're retelling the story, proclaiming our Lord's death until he comes. For this reason, whoever eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in the wrong spirit will be guilty of dishonoring the body and the blood of the Lord. So let each individual first evaluate his own attitude and only then eat the bread and drink the cup. For continually eating and drinking with the wrong spirit will bring judgment upon yourself by not recognizing the body. This insensitivity is why many of you are weak, chronically ill, and some are even dying. If you do not, if you do not sit in judgment of others, you will, you will avoid judgment yourself. But when, you are, when we are judged, it is the Lord's training so that we will not be condemned along with the world. So then, my fellow brothers, believers... When you assemble as one to share a meal, show respect for one another and wait for all to be served. If you are that hungry, eat at home first so that when you gather together, you will not bring judgment upon yourself. You see what's going on? They'd already forgotten what Jesus had established. They'd already forgotten the walls that Jesus had pulled down, saying that only, the only those who were in that little tiny group could come to the table. Jesus was eating and drinking and the reputation was that he was a drunkard and a glutton, and he was only around sinners and prostitutes and tax collectors. Jesus broke down all of those walls through his death and his resurrection 
But now they were letting those social and economic and those ethnic, ethnic barriers divide them. And I just think, everybody, this is what culture does. Culture has this pull on us constantly to its own morals and its own ways of doing things. But when you come to the table of Jesus, what it's all about is arresting those things and bringing those things really under the rulership of Jesus Christ. Because that's when you come to his table, this is where you let go. You let go of your personal preferences. You let go of your biases and your prejudices. We let go of our cultural mores. We let go of those things that divide us from other people. We let go of those things that are trying to divide us between us and God. We let go of all those things, and instead, we take into ourselves all of who then Jesus is. And we say yes to him. Maybe for the first time, maybe for the first time in a long time, maybe for the first time this week, we say yes to him, to Jesus' invitation to do life with him. Because the reality is, before you can bring other people effectively to your table, you need to first come to Jesus' table, because that's where it starts. And so today, as we start this new series, I want to invite you to his table. I want to invite you to this meal where we celebrate here together, where we let go of those barriers, those things that war against us, those things that divide us. If you would, I want you to just close your eyes here for a minute. Before we, before we really do this here together. Because I want you just to work in your own heart just for a second here. And I want you to really let the Holy Spirit speak to you about what are those things that maybe are growing up inside of you that are dividing you from others. What are those barriers? What are those, those things that maybe you have erected in your, in your own life? What are those ways that, you're, that you've been living your life insulated and isolated and kind of walled up in your own apartment or your own house? How have you just kind of given up in terms of, of, of really reaching out to others and sharing God's love in very practical and, and tangible ways? Just right where you are. Would you just let the Holy Spirit just speak to you there? And if there's things that he brings to mind, would you just bring those back to him? Would you just release? Would you surrender those things? Would you just let go in a very tangible way? Just let those go. Just release those things. If, you, if, there are, if there's just junk in your heart for a person, would you just release that? Would you let go of that judgment right here? If there's been things that have been warring in your heart, in your head, that's causing judgment to rise inside of you. Would you just let go of those things? Would you let go of those things that would try to keep you away from God? And right here, just in, here in this moment, as we prepare to come to this meal, to his table, would you just say yes to him? Whether this is your first time that you've ever said yes to Jesus, whether this is the first time in a long time that he's had your attention and, and right now in the moment you, you feel him pressing in on you, would you just say yes? Maybe as you start this new week, would you just say yes to him, to live your life, to live your life with him, in him, and through him? So Father, all across this room, Father, we just let go of all these other things. We let go of all the stuff that just kind of gets in our way. And Lord, we thank you for how you invite us to your table. We thank you for how it is that, that you welcome us 
to your table just as we are, as messy as our lives are, you welcome us. You don't exclude us from your table, but you actually welcome us. And so, Father, would you just work that in us here today? We're going to celebrate this meal differently, as you probably can see up front. Because, as I said, I think so often we reduce what we call the Lord's Supper into wafers and little juices when it's actually a meal. Now, I know you're not prepared to eat a meal here, but I thought we'd do it just a little bit differently here. We're going to do the same sort of thing we normally do when we come forward. We go in the middle. We start in the front row, and we'll go all the way to the back row. But you're going to start in the front row, and you're going to come forward, and you're going to go this way. But it's a table set for you. Don't get stuck in this position or that position. You can just keep going down the line. By the way, all of those who went gluten-free, it's clear at the end. You know, I didn't want people to eat yours at the beginning, so the gluten-free is down at the end, okay? Thought about you too. But here's the thing. I want you to think about others as you're doing this. Don't just think about yourself. You might help somebody because you're going to have to pour the juice for yourself. Maybe you need to pour the juice for the person behind you. Help. Serve. I have loaves of bread. If you need to just take off a hunk, just to say, okay, I need to just eat of this. Please, do. This is, we have more. (laughs) This is not to fill you up for your lunch. It's not very much nourishment right here. But I want you to have a meal here, quote, unquote, just a little bit. Take your time. Serve each other. And as you're doing it, you're, you're letting go of all those things that are divisive in you, and you're preferring each other, serving each other, helping each other in this. Does that make sense, everybody? So if you would stand up to your feet. I know this is a, a totally different type of service and series that maybe you're familiar with or what we've ever done around here, um, uh, but I want to ask you to take the journey with me. Jesus came. Eating and drinking, and the people said, he's a glutton, he's a drunkard, he's eating with tax collectors and sinners. Maybe the most courageous thing you can do, even this week, is to invite somebody over to your house for dinner, somebody that no good, clean, cultural Christian would ever invite to their house. But you invite that person to your house and you just eat a long dinner, you have something to drink, you talk, and you just simply love on them, listen to them. Just listen, listen, and just share life just a little bit and see what God might do in opening, starting to open some conversations and some doors in your life. I put it to you as a question. We're going to look at it for the next seven weeks. Just different ways that Jesus did this in a culture that was difficult. Maybe we can learn something as we go along this. And so, Father, I pray for every single one of us. God, would you just take us out of these kind of religious ruts, these status quo that so we find ourselves in. Lord, would you stir us again with your light and really your message Father, that 
if we've walled ourselves in, Lord, if we have just made this a religious thing and we've forgotten just the wonder, the amazement of how you love us, Lord, would you stir that again? Would everyone in here come back to their first love of you touching their heart and touching their minds, touching the very core of their soul? And that Father from that, Lord, that we wouldn't just hunker down, but Lord, that we would just begin to share. One meal at a time, we just begin to share what you have so incredibly given us that we would just share that with our neighbors and our friends and our family. Thanks for joining us today. If God is doing something in your life or you're looking for ways to get connected, you can learn about groups, teams, and more at onechapel.com slash welcome. You can subscribe to future messages from One Chapel on your favorite podcast player. And of course, you're always invited to services every Sunday morning at 930 and 1130. See you next time.